Good evening. I would like to thank Flash Rosenberg, our artist in residence, who together with our videographer, Jared Feldman, provide an afterlife for our live from the New York Public Library events. And it is the afterlife of these conversations which intrigue me dearly, as you can see from the note we have included in your program. My name is Paul Holdengraber, and I'm the Director of Public Programs here at the New York Public Library, known as Live from the New York Public Library. You have all heard me say this many times, for those of you who have come before. My goal here at the library is simply to make the lions roar, to make a heavy institution dance, and if possible, to make it levitate. I'd like to say a few words about the upcoming season. We will have Adam Phillips coming, George Saunders with Dick Cavett, Anne Carson, Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, William Gibson, Nathaniel Rich, Juno Diaz, Daniel Dennett, David Chang, and many, many others. We have just added two visual artists to this spring season, the ever-cool Ed Rouché on March 6th, and in May we will have Matthew Barney. I encourage you to join our email list so that you know what is my fancy at the latest possible moment. Daniel Kahneman and Nassim Taleb will be signing some books after their conversation. As usual, I wish to thank our independent bookseller, 192 Books. Preceding the signing, there will be time, if the mood permits it, to take some questions, brief questions, only questions, only good questions. No pressure. Now, I've said this also before, a question can be asked usually in about 52 seconds. I have, I have wanted to invite Nassim Taleb back to the New York Public Library, to a live program, and his most enticing new book, The Anti-Fragile, Things That Gain From Disorder, seemed like the perfect occasion. Nassim and I have contemplated many, many times having a conversation on, on stage here about things French, particularly André Malraux, who we both like and feel has not gotten his share. But also we might like to talk about Michel de Montaigne or even Pascal. We may someday, Nassim, indulge ourselves, I promise you. I promise to try, but for now. When I asked Nassim who his utmost desired interlocutor would be tonight, not his interviewer, but someone who would be in true conversation with him, he said without hesitation, as if I knew who he meant, Danny. <laughs> he meant Daniel Kahneman, the 2002 winner of the Nobel Prize in Economics, Professor Emeritus of Psychology at Princeton University, and the author of Thinking Fast and Slow. I'm so very delighted that Daniel Kahneman agreed to this conversation where I hope these two gentlemen will goad each other sufficiently. Now, over the last five, six years, I've asked my various guests to provide me a biography in seven words rather than reading their accomplishments, which are many in each case, to give me seven words which might define them, or not at all, a haiku of sorts, or if one wants to be very modern, a tweet. And Nassim Taleb uh, provided me with this, which I think is tremendously enlightening. Uh, convexity, metaprobability, and heuristics approach to uncertainty. Which is best explained, and then he provided me a three-line link. 
and I clicked on the link hoping for, for some enlightenment. M maybe some of you don't need it, but upon opening the link, I came upon a 395-page document, um, which after the seven words mentioned, which were part of it, has the following, which I, I hope will, will help you. Metaprobability consisting of published and unpublished academic style papers, short technical notes and comments. I did not print, print the close to 400 page documents because I was hoping for uh, some uh, clarification tonight. Um, Daniel Kahneman sent me his seven words, but from the outset negotiated with me and asked me if I would accept five. He had, I'm sure, more to offer, but he offered me five. That was a relief after the 395-page document. Um, <clears throat> here are the five words. Endlessly amused by people's minds. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome warmly to this stage Daniel Kahneman and Nassim Taleb. are strong. Aren't you bothered by the lights? <laughs> it's like we'll have, to, we'll have to be modest and look down, I think. No, it's hopeless. I mean, you're Sorry? not going to see they're that. Not, they're, right? not uh, they're, okay. they're not understanding. They're not, they're not, anyway. They're not lowering the lights. They're not getting a hint. Okay. Um, <coughs> In, in, in the book Anti-Fragile, I discuss something called the Lindy effect, that time is a great tester of fragility, with the following law. When you see an old uh, gentleman next to a young man, you know, based on actuarial tables, that the young man will outlive the old gentleman. <laughs> but for anything non-perishable, like an idea, a book, a movie, it's the exact opposite. If you see an old book, we just saw the, the technology, we saw Gutenberg, 500-year-old uh, book, quite, quite, quite uh, impressive. If you see a book that has been in print, say, 2,000 years, odds are it will be, in, you can guess it will be in print for 2,000 years. Been in print for 10 years, 10 years. If an idea has been in fashion for 50 years, they have 50 years. This is why we're using this glass that's 3,000-year-old technology. So Danny's ideas are 40 years old. People think <laughs> that uh, thinking fast and slow is a new book. And effectively, before, before you published your book, I was discussing it here as exemplified. You can predict the life of an idea or the importance of an idea based on its age. So therefore, <laughs> I should be talking about your book, not mine given it has uh, uh, 40 years. This is a, a um, great way uh, to show how time can, uh, how time can uh, detect fragility and take care of it. This is an introduction so <coughs> about, uh, about, about why you should be the one running the show and your idea should be the one running well, the show. Um, I'm not going to run the show because right. I think the focus of, of this conversation should be your recent book. I mean, 
mine is already old. I mean, it's, yeah. uh, it's out, uh, it was out, I think, in October 2011. Yours is a lot newer. Yeah. So okay, let's so talk about what anti-fragile is. Okay, so let me introduce the idea of anti-fragility uh, with the following. I was an option trader before I met Danny. We met in 2002, 2003, and of course, it changed uh, a lot of things for me. I decided then to become a scholar, all right? Right after meeting him, immediately. I said, okay, I'm gonna be a full-time scholar. It took me a couple of years you know, to become a scholar. And of course, I went and I had a book that I had to revise. Anyway, before that, I was an option trader. And option traders aren't very sophisticated people. They know two things, volatility and alcohol, <laughs> all right? So, and they classify things into things that like volatility and things that hate volatility. There are packages that like volatility, packages that hate uh, variability volatility. They call it long gamma or short gamma. You know, that was my specialty. When I entered the scholarly world, I realized that there was no name for things that benefit from volatility. Robust isn't it, you see. Things that are robust, things that are uh, adaptable, things that are agile, uh, resilient, uh, destructively resilient, creatively resilient, all these things, they're not the opposite of fragile. And they're not the equivalent of things that gain from volatility. So I decided, figured out that what is short volatility is fragile. This doesn't like volatility because if there's an earthquake in New York, you never know with, uh, you know, Paul, you know, maybe earthquakes here, but if there's an earthquake, this is not gonna gain from the earthquake. You see, so it does not like disorder, does not like volatility, doesn't like these things. So I just, you know, figure out that the fragile is a category of object, and the opposite of fragile was not robust. The opposite of fragile had to be a different category. If I'm sending a package to Siberia, fragile, you know, you translate into Siberian or whatever Russian they use, handle with care. The opposite wouldn't be, uh, you know, a robust package, you write nothing on it. The opposite would be something on which you would write, please mishandle. So there was, there's no name for, for, for that category. So I called it anti-fragile. What benefits from volatility has this, uh, you know, object. And I realized that somehow, the, the, you know, people were intu intuitively wouldn't get it. When we shoot for something, we shoot for resilience. That's not it. If you aim for resilience, you're not gonna do very well. So, you know, I decided to classify, and this book is about classification of things into the three category, uh, fragile, robust, anti-fragile. So, Danny, there you go. Uh, well, I mean, you're, you're almost forcing me to define what anti-fragile is because you haven't done it. But oh, okay. The, uh, or, gains or from variability, uh, disorder, uh, stress, uh, what else? Stressors, uh, harm, uh, things that, that benefit from, from uh, you know. In an early chapter of the book, you have a very long table yeah. with three columns. Yes. Uh, fragile, robust, and anti-fragile. And yeah. you can pick any of the rows in that, uh, in that table and elaborate on it. For example, tourists and flaneur, uh, one of your favorite words. Uh, why, why are tourists, and okay. there is something quite deep in, 
in that in, discussion. In Okay, uh, uh, I was an option trader. Option, you, know, you like optionality. You see, you like uncertainty. You benefit from uncertainty. You, you like some disorder. When you're a tourist, you're on the track. If the bus is late, you're in trouble. If you're an adventurer, you, you benefit, you have, you're opportunistically taking advantage of uncertainty. So therefore, you're in that category of anti-fragile. If you're robust, you don't care. So the idea of entrepreneurs are in the category of anti-fragile, and uh, the uh, people who have you know a very rationalistic thing put on track, you're following a, a you know a, a certain code, you are fragile because if something breaks, you're in trouble. You can't nothing good you know can 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 happen. Things can go wrong, but they can't get better. So the fragile has more downside than upside. Uncertainty harms them. Take a plane ride. If you inject uncertainty into your plane ride, I just came from Europe, it was eight hours, ended up to be 16. So I was eight hours late. Did anyone of you ever land in JFK coming from Europe eight hours early? No, that's, so category of object, you inject uncertainty, the, the, the travel time extends. The opposite would be a system in which you inject uncertainty, you have benefits. And that's the anti-fragile, entrepreneurship. If you're an adventurer, you like uncertainty. And people, you know, couldn't get it. I have a way to explain it. Someone tells me, what's the difference with resilient? I say, there's a big difference. If I buy insurance on my house in 10 times the amount needed, uh, you know, I want an accident to happen, you see. It's not as I want, I, every day, I, morning I'd wake up, I'd say, well, there's no call, no earthquake, nothing. If I had 10 times, I got paid 10 times the damages. So that's like inverse insurance. So insurance companies, of course, are short volatility, are harmed by disorder, they are fragile. And someone who has 10 times insurance would you know, benefit from uncertainty. There are many ways in which robust and anti-fragile sort of contrast in, in your world that I've been trying to understand. And so you're opposed to, you're in favor of decentralization. You're opposed to planning. Yeah. Yeah. You are opposed to teleology. I, I'm not quite opposed to planning. I'm opposed to uh, planning like you're on a highway and with no exits. You suddenly have a problem, you can't exit. That's what I'm against. I'm in favor of planning if you have optionality to exit. See, an option benefits from uncertainty, and you need options out. So, and, and, and there's something technical. A five-year plan, like a five-year option, is not as good as a series of one-year plan, very adaptable. You're not, you, you, you can't take advantage of changes in the environment if you're planned. So, one of the points that, that you make, which resonates with everybody, is that uh, too big to fail is actually a theme that you anticipated mm -hmm. in your, in your previous book, yeah. and it anticipated the crisis, and it, you know, one hates to use the word prediction, but you came as close as anyone, I think, to, to anticipating that crisis. So, but you take that very far. I mean, you're not, you wouldn't be satisfied with just breaking up the, the banks. You are really questioning globalization. You are questioning a great deal of what, there seems to be a logic within the modern e economy of things getting bigger. People searching for economies of scale and people searching for power. 
and the drive for power and for eco economies of scale cause other things to grow. And you are really, it seems to me, fundamentally opposed to it. Yeah, or am yeah. I pushing uh, you too yeah, far? I have, uh, no, 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 definitely. A, a system that gains from disorder has to have some attributes. And a system that's not harmed from disorder has to have some, follow some, uh, uh, you know, have, have a, a certain structure. So let me explain, uh, you know, the Greenspan story. The mistake we made, yes, ever since the Enlightenment, but very exacerbated now because we're more capable of controlling our environment, we want to eliminate volatility from life. We make the categorical mistake, I call it mistaking the cat for a washing machine. I don't know if you own a cat or a washing machine, they're very different. The washing machine will never self-heal. An organism needs some amount of variability and disorder, otherwise it dies. It actually, uh, an organism communicates with the environment via stressors. You see, you, you, you have stressors, you, you, you put, uh, you know, you lift weight, your bones are going to get uh, thicker. If you don't do that, if you go on a space shuttle, uh, you're going to lose bone density. So you need stressors. So people made a mistake of thinking that the, 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 the economy is more like a, some machine that needs constant maintenance, will never get better, and like this, you put it on a table, okay, you know, it will be harmed by any disorder, and human body that needs some amount of variability. That huge mistake led us to micromanage the economy into chaos. Take forest fires. If you extinguish every forest fire, single forest fire, a lot of flammable material would accumulate, and the big one would be a lot worse. So what Mr. Greenspan did, actually he's writing a book, he probably may come here for an interview. But Greenspan did, is he micromanaged the economy. Had you given him the seasons, or the nature, he would have fixed nature at 68.7 degrees year-round, no more seasons. So of course, things got weaker, and you had uh, the pseudo-stability. You, you, Danny himself, uh, that, you know, you've, you've mentioned in your writings that human beings uh, are a chicken, okay? They usually, they, they claim to have a lot of courage, so they take risks they don't know. They like to take risks they don't understand. Because, but when you, because when you're shown variability and risk, they get scared. So, we try to manage things, overmanage things, our health, uh, the economy, a lot of things, into complete uh, chaos and fragilize it. That's a mistake, the first mistake is mistaking uh, something organic for an engineered product. So that's the first mistake. And of course that has a psychological, there's a psychology behind it, no? Well, uh, I, think, I think there is an interesting psychological issue. On, on my sense is that people, by and large, prefer robustness to anti-fragility. Yeah. And, and, and that there are deep, deep reasons for that. So what you are advocating is not intuitive. What you are advocating, it, it, fits, it fits you very well. <laughs> I mean, it's not, uh, but that is because, you know, you have what you call fuck you money, and, and, you, <laughs> and <laughs> you can afford to be anti-fragile and to live in that particular way. Not many people do, not many people would want to. Uh, you like unpredictability, moderate unpredictability. Yeah. Most people really don't like it very much. I mean, they like much less 
unpredictability than you do. And some of your prescriptions push the boundary a lot. That is, this is less obvious perhaps in this book than in your previous one, in, in The Black Swan, but you, you are very much, well, you are very much a standard economic uh, profession and, and, and economic models and, and models of options and, and people trying to predict the future. That is, for you, Unpredictable. The attempt to predict is a sort of arrogance, and yeah. here I think uh, both of us. This Agreed, is something yeah. that that we certainly agree on. It's a sort of arrogance. So you have a system, it seems to me, in which probability plays very little role. In in this book, because you don't believe we can do it, we can actually say much. It seems to me about the future. We shouldn't try about the thing that really matter. And so you have a system that would guide people by the outcomes, by the range of outcomes. So basically the major prescriptions is limit the losses, don't limit the gains, yeah. which you call convexity. That, that, exactly. Take so I have two things to say here. Look at this coffee cup. <laughs> we know why it is fragile and we can measure the fragility. I can't predict the event that will break the coffee cup but I know if there's an event, what will break first? That the table will break after the coffee cup, you see? Or after the glass, sorry. You see, so you can measure and uh, pretty much uh, very easily fragility. And let me link it to size, and then I'll, I'll talk about prediction. And, uh, you know, to illustrate it to be big to fail. I was trying to explain, to, I tried to explain for a long time why too big to fail was not a good idea, why too large, is, is not good, why empirically companies never become large. They go bust before, unless governments prop them up, like uh, the banks. Till I, I, I figured out something from Midrash Tehillim. There's a story of a king who had a mischievous son, and he was supposed to punish the son, and the standard punishment was to crush him with a huge stone. I don't know if you've had to crush your son, your son with a, your stone, but it's not a very, you know, he definitely was looking for a way, looked for a way to get out of that. So what did he do? What do you think he did? He crushed the big stone into small pebbles and then had some coffee and then pelted his son with small pebbles. All right. So you see that, the, you know, if you're harmed by a 10% deviation, more than twice a 5% deviation, you are fragile. If a 10-pound stone harms you more than twice a 5-pound stone, you are fragile. It means you have acceleration of harm. So you can measure fragility simply through acceleration of harm. If harm accelerates, if I smash my car against the wall at 50 miles per hour once, I'm going to be a lot more harmed than if I smash it 50 times at one mile per hour. Uh, don't try, I mean, it has, you know, take my word for it. So, and if definitely a lot more than if I smashed it 5,000 times at a one milli millimeter per hour, okay, speed, so you realize. So that's, that's acceleration, you can figure out. So we can, from that, we can have rules of what's fragile, we can measure fragility, and we can eliminate fragility, and we know that size brings fragility. For example, with projects, Danny and, and a lot of his uh, disciples, have figured out that people tend to underestimate the cost of projects. It's chronic, 
projects tend to last longer. I don't know if you had to renovate the kitchen, but, but you probably will experience that. Okay. And it's getting worse with complexity. Well, uh, one, one a common friend, uh, you know, I asked him to provide me with numbers, and we looked at it. We realized that in the UK, a 100 million pound project has 30% more cost overruns than a 10 million pound pro project. I means size brings some fragility, which is why we don't have that many elephants. An elephant breaks a leg very quickly compared to a mouse. I don't know if you have a mouse, but you know, play with a mouse, it doesn't care. An elephant breaks a leg very quickly. So this is why I don't like size. So a decentralized government makes a lot of small mistakes. It seems messy because you see a lot of mistakes. They're in the New York Times front page every day, all right? So it scares people. A large centralized government doesn't seem to make mistakes. It's smoother, but guess what? When they make mistakes, we had two of them last uh, decade. We had the guy who went to Iraq, about $3 trillion so far and counting, and we had Mr. Greenspan. Two big mistakes. When you have small decentralization, multiplies the mistakes, they're smaller, pretty much like the pebbles, you know? They're not they're gonna bother you, but they're not gonna kill you. I see my I want to raise some discomforting questions. Yeah, One of them yeah. you know goes back to something that you don't emphasize in this book quite as much as you did in the Black Swan, but that's your Turkey example. Which and I think it's important. So you tell the Turkey okay. story, and then I'll, uh, All right. I'll uh, respond uh, to it. In, in the Black Swan, uh, there's a turkey that is fed every day by a butcher. And every day confirms to the turkey, to the Turkey's statistical department, to the Turkey's uh, you know, policy wonks, to the Turkey's office of management and budget, that the butcher loves turkeys with increased statistical confidence every day. And that goes on for a long time. There is a day in November when it's never a good idea to be a turkey, which is T minus two, we call it, all right? Thanksgiving minus two days, all right? So what happens, there's gonna be a surprise. It's gonna be a black swan, a large surprise event, but it would be a black swan for the turkey, not a black swan for the butcher, okay? So this is a turkey story. And my whole idea from the Turkey story to explain my black swan problem, which was misinterpreted for five years, is the whole idea is let's not be turkeys. That's the whole point of the black swan. So uh, uh, Danny sort of you know, has a psychological interpretation of the turkey problem. Well, I mean, I, I have a problem with it because when I look at this, at your story, I think the turkey has a pretty good life. Until, you know, I think that this sort of worry-free life that the turkey enjoys until Thanksgiving, this is something that we aspire to. That is, people do want robustness, they do want predictability, they do dislike risk, and this is very clear in your case, the focus being on extreme events. So you, you don't put a lot of weight on however many days the turkey has to enjoy life without worry. You put a lot of stress on, on the disaster. And it turns out, and the same I think you, you have, this is a general point about your orientation, that you put a lot of stress on events that are very rare and extremely important. Both, both the big ones, the good ones and the bad ones. So, 
mean, you brought several <laughs> examples of bad ones. Examples of good ones, you bring your own life story, where I think it is fair to say that you're a pretty wealthy man and you made your wealth in two periods, in two brief periods of time. Yeah, that's it, yeah. And most of the rest of the time, you either broke even or, or lost some. Or Less. lost some. Yeah. And, and you had it set up so that in some sense it was predictable that this policy of waiting, of arranging things, so that you left yourself open for a very large positive accident while preventing your losses from becoming very severe. That, that is clearly your ideal view of how to run things. Whether it is the ideal view for most people, I'm not sure. That is, for most people, we have a mechanism that will allow us, that makes us extremely sensitive to the small losses that you incur along the way, uh, in a way that may not be compensated by the extreme exactly. win. And the story is similar on the other side. I'll come back to it. Yeah, effectively, that's what uh, this explanation is why uh, you went to Stockholm in 2002. That's exactly prospect theory. Danny discovered the following. You'd rather make a million dollars over a year in small amounts. You get more pleasure. If you're going to make money, make it in small amounts. And if you're going to lose money or have a bad event, have it all at once. Because losing, you'd rather lose a million dollars in one day than lose a little bit of money even in smaller amounts, okay, over two years, because by the third day, it's like Chinese torture. No. And, and, and that's prospect theory. That's the reason he had the, the Nobel. He's the reason he, you know, the, the whole thing. And people still haven't absorbed that point. The prospect theory, that's what, what, what uh, and, and we, when we met in 2003, I, I immediately found, you know, the embodiment of my idea right there, <laughs> you know. In, 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 in prospect theory, in, in, in that but, equation. But in a way, what you are, I mean, if we link it to prospect theory, what you're prescribing goes against the grain. That is, you are prescribing, uh, you're, you're prescribing a, a way of being or a way of doing things that exposes an individual to, to a long series of small losses in the hope of a very large gain. Yeah, it's not, not quite. What I'm doing is the opposite, trying to tell people, do not uh, mortgage your future for small gains now. And, and they get it when you present it that way. There's another psychological thing, that people tend to create a narrative that you know, the, the large event will never happen. So, and there's another dimension of why do we have uh, bankers, for example, they make pennies, they make pennies, they make pennies. And when a crisis happens, they lose everything they've made before. And effectively, in 1982, I was writing on the Black Swan. I got so many hate letters from bankers. In 1982, I showed why the banks lost in one quarter more money than they made in the history of banking until then, history of money center banking. They repeated it in 1991. And of course, 2007, you don't need more uh, you know, examples. So, and every time, but there's another dimension. It's not their money they're losing. It's your money. Anyone here who files that piece of paper on April 15 is subsidizing them because when they make the money, it's theirs. And when they lose the money, 
it's ours on April 15th. Taxpayer sponsors it. So we have here what I call a transfer of anti-fragility. A banker's anti-fragility has upside, no downside. Taxpayer has downside, no upside. So you're going to have a lot of risk hiding on top of the psychological thing. So, and then you told me, you know, uh, the, the, there is the two effects, and I call them one fooled by randomness, the other crooks of randomness. Okay, so there's the fools of randomness and the crooks of randomness, you see? And it's a combination that we see present in society. If you remove one, the crooks of randomness, you would have much less of it. This, of course, this phenomenon would prevail, although there's something called dread risk. People may be scared by extreme events if you present it to them properly, as you have shown. But, uh, but the, the, the phenomenon, crooks of randomness, is what we definitely can remedy. Well, you know, the there is something else that troubles me uh, and is psychologically troubling, I think. You take to task, and very severely in the black swan, and you, know, you yeah. repeat it to some extent in, uh, in anti-fragile, you take to task people who attempt to predict in the economic domain because they do not predict the big events. And and, and you call them names. I mean, you call, people, yeah. you call them charlatans. Yeah, and, they are. You know, other, uh, <laughs> and, and yet, those people are quite popular and their services are very much in demand. Yeah. And I, my image about that is that if you, have a, if you have a system of weather forecasting that does pretty well in the everyday, it does pretty well in telling you when to take an umbrella and when not to, but it completely misses out on hurricanes. You would reject that system altogether. No, I mean, we, we definitely, when we get on planes, all right, the, the, when we get on a plane, uh, the, we focus on a plane crashing, not on the comfort. So it's not like uh, you know, we're going to have bad coffee on the plane. The risk is well-defined, a plane crashing, not having an uncomfortable ride. So. What you're talking about is different. Someone is predicting an event. He has to predict the full span of events. You see, you have to be protected. And people understand it in the military. In the military, they deal, we spend $800 billion a year to deal with extreme events. We, don't have, we haven't had a big war here for now 50-some years, 60 years. So we have the problem of people who predict who are not harmed by their mistake. So what are they going to do? They're going to predict the regular very well. And when extreme event happens, guess what? Oh, it was unpredictable. You see? Yet you're going to rely on it. And he sh you showed in your research, actually I'm inspired by it, in the story of, the, uh, of the, the, the Wheel of Fortune, how if you, someone flips a Wheel of Fortune uh, randomly uh, in front of you, and then you get a number, Whatever, and makes you estimate any variable, whatever you're, you're going to estimate will be correlated to what you saw on the Wheel of Fortune. Yeah, that's a phenomenon called anchoring. Any number that somebody puts in your mind is likely to have an effect on... Well, if you consider it as a possible solution to, a, to an estimation problem, it's going to have an effect on how you think about the problem. So if I give you... If I ask you, are there more or less than... Uh, well, 65% African nations in the UN, uh, and then I ask, I ask you, what is the p 
proportion of African nations in the UN, you are going to end up with a different estimate than if I first ask you, are there more or less than 15% African nations in the UN? You know that those numbers are wrong, but they influence you. They tell you how to think about it. So, yeah, yeah, the conclusion That's is that if I produce a forecast, I'm going to harm you. You see, it's no different. I call it iatrogenics, harm done by the heel. No different from when you go to pharmacy to get a drug. If you, you know, if it doesn't work, it may harm you. Or actually, it will harm you. So this is the fact of forecasting. It's harmful. And, and my idea is to build a society that can sustain forecast errors. So the charlatans can forecast all they want. They should not be able to harm us. That's the idea. And how, you know, do you build such a society? Less government debt, because when you have debt, you need to be very precise about the future. You can't make forecast errors. So you need to have less debt. You're more robust when you have less debt. Or actually, to become anti-fragile, first you have to become robust. Less debt. Decentralization. And the third one is elimination of moral hazard. How do you eliminate the moral hazard? I call it the Bob Rubin problem. Bob Rubin made $120 million from Citibank hiding risk, when Citibank was hiding risks. And then when Citibank went bust, he didn't show up to work with his checkbook to return the money. No, we're paying for it retrospectively. So here you have truck drivers paying for his bonus. So we have to eliminate these three. If you eliminate these three, you're going to have, we're a lot better off. Then we'd come and sit down and look at what psychological problem we have left you know, that we should monitor. I think, you know, the problem of skin in the game and yeah. In a way, what you're saying there uh, is more generally acceptable, that incentives have to be aligned. That, that would yes. not be a very controversial statement. It, I mean, actually, you make it is. It, it is. You make it in a controversial way. No, 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 way, no, no, it is, because the definition of skin in the game is a bonus for a lot of people. They don't understand. Skin in the game is not a bonus. Skin in the game is a bonus and malice. You have to be penalized by your mistake. Small amount. Nevertheless, you have to be penalized. You know, they used to be head bankers, all right, when they made a mistake. And the best risk management rule, actually, is we discovered that since Hammurabi. The Hammurabi had a very simple rule. The best risk, who's the best risk manager? It's you. Or can be the best risk manager. If an architect, and I'm sure this architect took care of the, you know, his good structure. If an architect or engineer builds a building, and the building collapses and kills the owner, Hammurabi's law. The owner, the architect is put to death. Why? Not because they wanted to kill architects. Look, they built a lot of ziggurats, all right? What they wanted to prevent is risk hiding because they realized that no cop, no regulator will ever know more about the risk than the person who created them. And we're going to hide the risk in tail events and rare events that happen infrequently. So that's, that's why we have to have some disincentive, not very large. Even Adam Smith, by accepting the limited liability company, was not crazy about the fact that people had no could have no liability. He wanted people to always have some liability. So capitalism doesn't work unless you have liabilities. And here we have a class of people, bankers. They got us in trouble, and they made all the bonuses after. In 2010, they paid themselves a larger bonus pool than before the crisis. It's crazy. Yeah, I don't yeah. think, I mean, you won't get an argument from me okay. on, so, so. on this issue. So, uh, <laughs> right. with, the, 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 you know, for, we can argue on, on anti-fragile versus robust because the implications of your argument are, okay. I think, okay. are uh, costly. I mean, we, not, there is a cost. They're necessary. They're, they're beyond necessary. If I 
if, if I put someone, a child, completely deprived of stressors in a sterilized room for five years and then bring him here to visit the New York subway, you know, next door, you know, how, long, how many minutes will he last? Okay, so visibly, if you're not exposed to stressors, you're gonna be weakened, okay? We're getting, we have a society that is obsessed by eliminating small stressors, small risk, at the expense of large risks. And this manifests itself a lot of things. The fact that we didn't have a name for anti-fragile means half of life doesn't have a name. It didn't matter in the old days because we had stressors all the time. Now we control our environment and we control the wrong thing about the environment. We try to make the ride comfortable, but don't eliminate the, the large risk. In fact, it's the opposite. In any field, we've been harmed by, I call it denial of anti-fragility. Denial of anti-fragility, Greenspan wanted to smooth out the economy, create a, no more boom and bust. No, it's natural to have boom and busts, some, in some amount. He created a big bust, okay? In, 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 uh, and we're discovering there's something called Jensen's inequality. Jensen's inequality means some properties of nonlinear response that makes you benefit from variability. Your food intake, if you eat food, if you eat on a, you know, if your calories, you always have the same amount of calories all the time, you're gonna be injured. Uh, you know, if you stay in on, a, on a chair, all no stressor, right? You're not, your back is gonna get, become weaker, stuff like that. But you can generalize. So what I've done here is try to identify the blind spot we have today that matter today did not matter in the past because in the past we had the environment was providing us with stressors. Take, for example, temperature. It's not healthy to stay at 68.7 degree 24 hours. It's not healthy. You need variability. We're made for variability. We're made for an environment, you know, where you have big uh, thermal fluctuation. So you injure yourself, and effectively now we have a catalog of things, harm you're getting from not getting variability. Likewise in the economy, if you don't have, think of the restaurant business, if you don't have bankruptcies in the restaurant business, what would happen? I don't, tonight we're going out to dinner, all right? The quality of the meal is a direct result of the fragility of individual restaurants. A system to be robust and anti-fragile needs to recycle and improve the fragility of the components, okay? Otherwise, you know, look at Russia. The restaurant didn't go bust. I, mean, I don't know if you ate food in the 70s in Russia, but uh, some people are still trying to recover from the experience. Right? <laughs> so, but I have one more thing to say. A system that does not convert stressors, problems, variability into fuel is doomed. Let me give you a system that's perfectly uh, uh, adapted to converting stressors into improvement. The air transport. In the last seven years, we had one plane crash commercial plane crash. Uh, not, I mean, I'm not talking about individual flying on weekends, you know, half drunk. Plane crash for, you know, major airlines. Why? Every plane crash that has happened has made the next plane ride safer, lowered the probability of next plane crash. Every plane crash. That's a system that is overall anti-fragile, where you benefit, you do never let a mistake go to waste. Now, compare that to the banking system. A bank crash would make the probability of a next bank crash much more likely, right? M much higher. That's not a very good system, all right? So this is how we can, based on that, compare things. Well, 
Um, I keep going back to the same point. This is not really what people want to do. Yeah. (laughs) That is, I certainly, uh, you know, many of us certainly uh, go almost directly in New York from heating to air conditioning and vice versa (laughs) because we do like the constant temperature. So you are making a point which I think is true and deep that in in some situations uh, that we are made for variability, that is, we are designed by evolution uh, to, to be able to cope with stresses and indeed, uh, as you, a point you made absolutely correctly, to benefit from stresses. But we're also designed to avoid stresses. <laughs> to try to avoid stresses. It's identical to randomness. We're made to hate randomness because the environment was given us randomness and it prevented us from dying, prevented us from encountering the big, uh, uh, you know, large-scale event. So we made to hate all kind of randomness because we're not, you know, fine-tuned, you know, for, for, for such uh, uh, subtlety, okay, that some randomness in small amounts is good for us. So we realize randomness is bad, is bad, okay? So it's the same way, the same way we think that stressors are bad, when in fact, b- bad, big stressors are bad, small stressors are beneficial. This is the nonlinearity that we don't capture intellectually. Well, the psychology of it is the following, that we're actually relatively more sensitive to small losses than to big losses, and to small harms than to big harms. That is, this, we have a limited ability, actually, to feel pain. And we feel a lot of pain for very little harm, and then it doesn't get worse proportionately. So that in, some, in a very real sense, we're designed against what you want. Uh, yeah, but except that, guess what, what saved us from this? Religion. I mean, I'm Greek Orthodox, all right? Uh, I'm not practicing, but sort of sometimes practicing for dietary reasons, okay? We have, and we have, I mean, think about it. it, it, it religions force you to fast, force you to, to have variability in your food, especially we have 40 days for Lent, 40 days plus every Wednesday and Friday. No, and you're vegan. So you're vegan so many days. Why? To prevent you from having protein. Well, because we're, we're part lion, part cow. The lion in us gets the protein with, with, uh, with a random frequency, whereas the cow in us eats salad without dressing every day, all the time. Right? So you see the boring and, and the, the hunter. So if you're made to get protein episodically, intermittently, and you get it all the time, you may be harmed. Religions have evolved to prevent us from that by banning us from eating protein seven days a week. You see? So you can look at the fasts in Ramadan. It has the very same purpose. So you see all these rituals were there to help us cope, force us on grounds, you know, of course, a religion is like someone packaging a story uh, for a, uh, you know, giving you a story, in fact, to force you to do something else. And, and that was, a, I mean, so we have had mechanism to correct for this, uh, for the diseases of abundance. I mean, we live in a world today where a lot more people are dying of overnutrition than undernutrition. You see? Well, we have 700 million people s- supposed to be under, uh, uh, you know, uh, fed, but, but of these, the really ill, a very small number. Well, uh, you... I want to change the subject a bit. Yeah. <laughs> um, and 
And I want to tell the story of what I have learned from you. And oh. it's going to be only part, because I've learned a fair amount. But uh, Nassim really changed the way I think about the world in, oh. in quite <laughs> significant ways. And by, by making me realize the fundamental unpredictability of truly important things in our lives, this idea, the black swan idea, of, uh, of rare events, extreme events dominating what actually happens in our lives is a profoundly important insight and, and uniquely original, I think, and it certainly had a very large impact on, on how I think about uncertainty. The, the skepticism about professional predictions, the you know, fundamental skepticism, and they're really sort of two personalities, and when you read uh, Nassim's books, you'll encounter several characters. Uh, two of them, I think, are part of you. And that's <laughs> Nero Tulip and Fat Tony. That's and Fat Tony is quite an interesting character. He's a trader, and he is a cynic, and he really... Uh, fundamentally irreverent. Nero Tulip is the intellectual. And, and he is very much that part of you, and both of them are in you. And he's also irreverent. And he also doesn't take nonsense, but he's very interested in ideas, whereas Fat, uh, uh, Fat Tony is not particularly interested in ideas at all. And that the skepticism of both of these, both of Fat Tony and of Nero Tulip, was very instructive for me. I mean, you're rude to economists, frankly. I mean, it's not... Uh, you're, you're, you're more rude than you need to be, in my opinion. But, uh, but there, is, there is something really refreshing and something very instructive in seeing a free spirit... And, and those two kinds of approaches, the approach of the trader, and you keep emphasizing that, and then the approach of the scholar, who is really a self-taught scholar. And, and you're, you're, you're not, you don't really respect academics very much. I, I, I uh, do, I do, I do. Yeah, but, I mean, but, but, some of them, some. very selectively. Don't tell but, I'm uh, an academic now, the, I have, you know, I fake it. So that was up to the black swan, and then... I remember we had conversation in which I said, okay, you have, you know, you're raising fundamental questions and you are creating, that's or focusing our attention on the specter of unpredictability. What are we going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? And anti-fragile, I think, is to some extent an attempt to answer that question. That's uh, not the question because I, mean, I raised uh, actually, it. Actually, no, no, but you, you, you're, uh, Danny forced a subtitle on me. He said, I don't know what Nassim's book, next book is going to be called. The subtitle will be How to Live in a World We Don't Understand. So I had to get to work, and I had to spend three and a half years locked up trying to work out, you know, the fragile, non-fragile. And it became the subtitle of my UK edition. Uh, it's the same. In the UK, they want more uh, uh, strange subtitles. In, in the US, they, you know, <laughs> they want precise subtitles. But uh, the 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 uh, so the idea was he, he and he for, he said okay. I said if you know 
th there is unpredictability in some domains. If you can identify the domains where there's unpredictability, you're done. You said, no, no. You have to take the horse to water, and now you have to make it drink. So I had to come up with precise rules. So this one is a little more precise. So, uh, th yeah. Yeah, so that's, that's what emerges. And what emerges is, is fairly surprising, actually. Uh, oh. The anti-fragile uh, is, is a set of, pres of prescriptions. And it's a set of prescriptions how, when you have achieved an anti-fragility, you really don't need to predict. I mean, I think that's, that is a very fundamental. You don't need to predict in detail. This is where probability doesn't feature very much in this book. It features, you know, in the more technical discussions. But fundamentally, this is about outcomes. This is about uh, making losses small and, and allowing for, for large gains. That is your recipe. It is avoiding the major crises so you don't have to anticipate them. So you don't have to try to predict them because, in fact, they're unpredictable. And, it, and the distinction between robustness and, and anti-fragility is in some sense, really giving up on the possibility of prediction. Uh, th there's something technical I want to mention here about there's a domain that's purely anti-fragile benefits, it's the entrepreneurship. Okay, and I was calling for National Entrepreneur Day. Why? Because, you know, as you're saying, losing a little bit of money all the time to make big gains isn't part of human nature, except in California it is. Where it's respectable to fail. They say fail early, so you can fail seven times before your big thing. So collectively, you have thousands of people failing for everyone succeeding, and the person succeeding also ha have, has failed probably seven or eight times before. Okay? So they deal with failure, but they have small upside. But how do they do it? One, they made it respectable, and I want to make it more respectable. But there's a mathematical property that's quite shocking that, that came out from options that I realized, and I call it the philosopher's stone, and, and, I, and no, no, nobody's getting the following, that trial and error isn't really trial and error. Trial and error is trial with small error. If you have small error and big upside, what is anti-fragile has small losses, big gains. So trial and error has to have small losses, big gains. So if you model it, you realize that to outperform trial and error intellectually, you need at least a thousand IQ points. Which, which I mean, I'm sure you know you're close, but, but even that doesn't get that that high. I mean, if a few people. Uh, I mean, nobody, nobody, you know, gets uh, close to a fraction of that. Anyway, so you realize that uh, that's uh, the, the, my main idea when I say that you'd rather be anti-fragile than intelligent any time. And you look at the data, and you realize that all the big gains we have had in any field, almost any field, except the nuclear and even in medicine, except for AZT drugs, came from trial and error by people who didn't have much of a clue about the process, just trying. You, you try, you discover, you're rational enough to know that what you found is better than we had before. So that's, this is where, and, and in this Fat Tony story, Fat Tony, uh, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm just I'm like talking to a shrink, I realize there's a Fat Tony in me. Fat Tony was, was a sad character. I didn't know I was Fat Tony, but now I realize that I am you Fat were. Tony. I'm Fat Tony half the day, <laughs> right, half probably the half the day now. All right. Now, things come out, you know, in these conversations. Watch out when you talk publicly with a uh, psychologist next time. Right. So, the, the Fat Tony, well, whether I got this idea of Fat Tony from Nietzsche. I don't know if you've heard of creative, the notion of creative destruction, but it's in Nietzsche. Nietzsche has Dionysus, the Dionysian in us, 
and he has the Apollonian. The Apollonian likes order, knowledge, serenity, uh, harmony, uh, and of course, uh, uh, predictability, and, and see things. And there's that dark force that hard to understand, the, uh, the, the Dionysian, right? And Innes, and, and then there's, he, he found that, you, that the, when the, the balance got disrupted with Socrates. So Fat Tony goes to argue with Socrates. So there's two poles. Fat Tony, who doesn't believe in knowledge, he believes in tricks and no theory. He believes in doing, and you try to keep trying until something works, and you get rich, and then you go have lunch, and this is why he's called Fat Tony. He has a lot of, a lot of meals. So he's, he's arguing with Socrates, and then he was able to express that sentence that Nietzsche, Nietzsche really understood. He said, the mistake people tend to make is to think that whatever you don't understand is stupid. That was Fatoni. The unintelligible is not necessarily unintelligent. And anti-fragility is harvesting the unintelligible, is harvesting what we don't understand. And this is what we've done. Take the Industrial Revolution. Take California, you know, the, uh, the Silicon Valley. Take in medicine, the discoveries. is harvesting the unintelligible with small errors and big gains and doing it in an industrial scale. And the problem with education, that's the only thing I don't like about academia, is one, had we put Bill Gates through an entire you know, college experience, we wouldn't have had Microsoft, right? Okay, so the problem is the industrial revolution happened with people who weren't really academics, and once we got there, then they wanted the state you know, to create uh, you know, invention from top down, not bottom up. That's the problem, education inhibits risk taking. That's my only point. Well, it disrupts that balance. When you read Anti-Fragile, some of you, many of you, I hope, have read it already, but what you see is that many of the concepts that we normally admire are questioned in the book. And, and the book, even if you don't completely buy the argument, because I think the argument is quite extreme, but even if you don't completely buy it, it is bound to lead you to questions, to questions about the relative value of theory and practice, as you identified, to questions about the, the value of planning versus trial and error. So we, we normally favor theory, we favor general understanding, we favor deductive reasoning over induction. Those are that's, that's the way our values are. These are questions in this book. We normally tend to large size, and, and there is, it is built in, this thing that you oppose, is really built in that enterprises tend to grow, and they tend to try to grow, in part because of hubris. In large part, it turns out, because of hubris. Yeah. You have leaders who seek power, and they seek power by growing. The market wants organizations to grow. I mean, the value of stocks is not determined by, you know, this, a stable input. It is really determined by the anticipation of whether somehow that firm will grow. Even when it is already gigantic, like Apple or Microsoft, its value is determined by the expectation that it will grow. So all of these issues which all of these topics, which we normally accept and we normally consider fairly obviously the, the way to go, that's in the modern world, all of these are really questioned in, in anti-fragile. So 
that makes it it makes it worth taking a look, even if sometimes it, the book is going to make you quite uncomfortable. Nassim has that way. He sometimes makes his friends squirm, and and it <laughs> and it remains worthwhile. I think we should open it up. Thanks. is here that you come up to the mic and you look at the two distinguished speakers and ask a question which is less than a minute long. Go ahead. Okay. One of the things Mr. Taleb said uh, can be conveyed in a way of an aphorism. The best risk management is management's own risk. And uh, recently a great scholar surprised me telling that scholars resist aphorisms. So, and aphorisms often convey wisdom. So my question is, does it mean that modern scholarship is against wisdom? What is the relation between modern scholarship and wisdom? And oh, you write aphorisms and Mr. Kahneman studies mind, so it might be you both might contribute to the answer. Uh, yeah. So there's a long line, so let me... Uh, uh answer yeah. quickly. I'm not saying, you have, it's just like this imbalance that Nietzsche was talking about. We need scholarship, but not too much. We need wisdom a lot more than, than, than I mean, we need street smarts a lot more than we got. We got here from street smarts. And now, what we're shooting for is to preserve the system by, by transforming it into uh, academic uh, thing. It doesn't work that way. You need a balance between Dionysian, Fat Tony, and Nero Tulip, between the Dionysian and the Opolonian. Can you take another? We don't have a lot of minutes. Yeah. So it's like this. Thank yeah. you. Is, thank you. This is primarily for Professor Kahneman, but for both of you. Why are humans so have, have, why do humans have such a hard time computing probability? It's very easy for a child to learn to add, to subtract, to divide, and then the easiest probability is there. An, is there an evolutionary advantage to not being able to predict or to compute probability? Well, I mean, you know, there is a cognitive difficulty in thinking about probability that you have to maintain several possibilities in the mind at once. And this is really something that turns out to be quite difficult for people. So normally we, we have a story, and it's a single story. It's a single story with a theme. And thinking probabilistically in a proper way is extremely difficult for people. People do have a sense of propensity, that is, that a system has a tendency to do something or other, but that's quite different from thinking about probability, where you do have to think of two possibilities and weigh you know, the relative chances of their happening. You had mentioned the Alan Greenspan. What is your opinion of what the current chairman of the Federal Reserve is doing in ex expanding... This is my the nightmare. The, 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 he said, what is my idea of the, expanding the money? It's my nightmare. Because debt, uh, we're living off debt, government debt. Uh, centralization more than ever, top-down, government debt is my nightmare. Bernanke, my nightmare. I can't see his... Don't tell him he looks like me. I can't see his... <laughs> it's a, like, my nightmare. My, it's a ni nightmare. I, I think we, we're the, the, it's a big problem. Paul Krugman and, uh, and this guy, they're my two nightmares. Sorry for the colleague, but, right. So there's no, there's no way to resolve 
what they're doing? How do you resolve it? I mean, the, the, the point is that you're creating, you're not even creating growth, all right? If you print money, you should, you know, it should translate into growth, all right? So the GDP coming from printing money and GDP otherwise. What is it doing? The middle class, the middle class is, uh, uh, standard of living is dropping because income from the middle class is dropping. They're fragilizing the economy. The, the thing we should have done in 2008, actually we had a similar conversation when I was massively angry and now I'm, look how polite and nice I am. <laughs> all right. In 2008, we were, I was, I was uh, 2009, early 2009, I was shouting, I was, I was angry, all right? We should have turned that into equity because for the system, you know, should, we should not have debt, we should have equity, and equity makes the system anti-fragile. Look in California, they don't use debt, they use equity. So instead of doing that, we, we moved into turning private debt into government debt. And there's nothing worse than government debt. They're gonna create inflation that they can't control later, and they're gonna pay the price by contracting, horrible stories, anyway. So can we have another question? <laughs> Please, no Greenspan, no. Uh. I want to thank you both for um, having us in your living room this evening. Um, despite the presence of diabetes and Walmarts, humans persevere, and some, we've been doing antifragility to some level successfully. Um, could you talk about the heuristics that has made antifragility sexy and let us continue to exist for so many years? And also, I mean, you succeeded correlating Black Swan to a very sexy movie, but antifragility doesn't roll off the tongue, and when I convince my friends to uh, live in an anti-fragile way, um, they're like, oh, could we rebrand this in some way? And could, we could use heuristics to do so. Could you speak to that? I don't know. I, I mean, I have... Uh, go ahead. Go ahead. If, you know, the, the, the heuristics, of course, to achieve anti-fragility, the, the first one I call the barbell heuristic, is uh, induce, like walking and sprinting is better than just jogging. Having a very risky portion of your portfolio and very, 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 very you know, minimal risk on the other side is a lot better than having medium risk, all right? Having in the UK government conservative plus uh, liberal Democrats is a lot better than having labor, all right? So things, there's some rules. There's, I have about 49 out, uh, explicit heuristics and about 100 implicit ones of how you can inject antifragility in the system, okay? Uh, for example, uh, one is better, instead of being an academic all the time, be a lens maker, you know, like a famous lens maker, and then write uh, treatises and logic at night. You know, you do better than being an academic 100%, that kind of stuff. So there are some heuristics, and also fasting, fast, try to fast as much as you can, okay, to compensate. If you're not religious, if you're religious, it may come automatically. If not, then all right. Uh, the problem is that the environment is stable, so it's harming us somewhere, and making us live longer, but sicker, <laughs> you see? Thank you. Uh, in, in my way of thinking, you had focused upon too big to fail, at least in, in my way of thinking, and I'm an economist, I think too big to fail by definition is too big to exist. And once you, you know, take a good look at that, um, I'm wondering what you think okay. about the pension liability debt, which I think will be far greater coming down the road and uh, it's really not being focused it's, it's upon. It's a nightmare. The, the pension liability is not, Let me not be negative. Let me propose something positive, all right? So the, the too big, there's one way to mitigate the too big to fail that I propose is a, a very simple heuristic for government. Where you take the list of companies. You say, if that company fails, is it a national emergency? Yes, no. If the answer is yes, then all employees should earn civil servant equivalent uh, salary, all right? If it is not bailable out, they can do whatever they want. They can 
pay themselves, whatever, that's not our problem, taxpayer, okay? If you have that rule, it would eliminate too big to fail because too big to fail exists because they know you're gonna bail them out. So they take, the, and they hijack the government as the banks did to play with you. If they're too big, so, hey, come, you know, we're too big. So you force them to be small by controlling their compensation. Hi, uh, my name is Nikhil Goyal. I'm a recent high school graduate and author. Uh, my question is, I know you write a lot about in the book about autodidacts and lecturing birds how to fly. Um, how do you think we can bring about this autodidactic culture and tinkering back to our schools and our universities? I mean, you have it automatically. When you see big um, uh, scholars, they're, it's not like they, what they learn, they learn in class. They're autodidacts. Or big scholars, you can see it. The problem is at the level of... of that people start shooting for grades, that's the problem. Instead of using grades like driver's license and, and you know, where, where you don't try to shoot for grades beyond passing, and then focusing their time on really what interests them, you see? Uh, we, we should not, uh, the, the problem is racing for grades make people optimize the system, exactly like we do with ratings, bank ratings or stuff like that. People game the system. So you're gonna have the most stupid person in everywhere except for that grade you see, eventually, just like uh, athletic performances. So you should turn, move scholarship away from a competitive sport, okay, into something more, you know, less measurable and, uh, immediately, or at least less tractable that way. But, but if you look at the history of, 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 of what we got, the individual scholar have had always had a huge advantage over the institutionalized one, in history. I mean, you know, there is a theme here. Anti-fragility is a deeply conservative idea. Uh, Burkean conservative. No. Yeah, Burkean conservative. Burkean conservative, not, not, uh, not conservative a la Bush. No, no, not that, not that stuff. What we're going to do now is take three questions at a time. My question is actually for Daniel Kahneman. Um, I, I know that you uh, poke fun at the irrational quite a bit, and uh, you, you sort of allude to it in your five words. I wonder if you could talk about in what ways creativity and intuition have benefited your career other than serving as a straw man for your, your research. Uh, creativity has never served as a straw man for my research. Uh, and, and in fact, intuition hasn't either. In, I'm a firm believer in intuition. You know, I have done a lot of research explaining where intuition leads us astray. But intuition, most of the time, works extremely well for us. You know, the, the book that I wrote on System 1 and System 2, Fast Thinking, is really how we live. System 2 is a commentary, and System 2 sort of keeps us in check. But basically, what keeps us moving is System 1, and it's intuitive, and mostly, it's fine. Occasionally, it leads us into amusing errors, and I've spent my life studying those amusing errors. But you have to see the perspective of it, and clearly the perspective is not the bumbling fools running around. You know, we are very well adapted to our world. Thank you for your presentation. We tend to look at the future as something ahead of us, before us. The ancients looked at the future as something that comes behind us and sort of carries us along. Is this really the essence of uh, behind uh, what, what uh, 
anti-fragility and black swan and fooled by randomness. Uh, okay, uh, let me uh, mention how to find a solution for all these problems. Try to go away from the story of narrative. There's, uh, of course, uh, the Greeks had uh, um, uh, Prometheus and his brother Epimetheus. One guy was in the past, the, other, the next was in the future. But how was he in the future? He was in the future not through narratives, but through optionality. Uh, tinkering, trial and error frees you from having a narrative, you see? So try to avoid non-narrative form of life by opportunistically taking advantage of things in a structured way. So you need a huge amount of reason, but at the same time, you, uh, you don't need a narrative. It's much harder to live that way, but it's much more rewarding, much safer. Uh, apologies, I'm wearing a tie, so I'm a little bit nervous. <laughs> uh, just a, a brief question. In anti-fragility, you, you, you mention um, something terrible about anti-fragility around uh, sort of the weak at sort of the, the expense of the, of the strong. Can, have you been able to, to, to reconcile yeah, yes. that? Yes, with the barbell, you should protect the very weak. Protect the very weak. Help the risk taker take more risk and worry less about the middle, which is not very popular, but overprotect the weak. This is why the, 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 the point is you have to allow people to fail. National Entrepreneur Day is part of this idea, is that to encourage people to become risk takers. What does the government do? What does the Obamists, what do they, they do? They bail out the corporations and they bail out the strong. No, you should bail out individuals, not corporations. By, by giving them a backup to take more risk in life because we got here thanks to risk taking, convex risk taking, you know, optionality and stuff. We should limit it, I think, to the next two questions. You're giving the ladies a chance. <laughs> um, at, at any rate, it, it seems to me who have read neither of your books, um, that this was, this was billed as a, uh, a discussion of uh, making decisions. And I have, I think, uh, enable, I have been able to understand about half of what you said. And on that half, I would like to ask a question that is not a financial question, and not an economic question, and not a business question, but a real-life question, at least to me, and I suspect to many people here. How do you feel, how does your, uh, how, do you, how do your philosophies help somebody who is trying to think about gun control? No clue. <laughs> uh, you know, you can, have, you can have intellectuals writing books. They don't have answers to all questions. And I, I don't think that either Nassim or I have answers to the gun control questions. We have opinions, but, but I don't think that we, you know, anything that we've said has a direct line. To, isn't that, a, isn't that ultimately have a decision? Because there's other, you, still other people. We don't, we don't have solutions to all decisions. Okay. Sorry about that. Change the people consciousness first. Um, yeah, quick question, gentlemen. Um, can you please tell me on your, uh, what do you think what the philosoph philosophical mind is? The true philosophical mind is? 
No clue. I didn't actually hear the question. What's the true philosophical mind? It shouldn't. Is, yeah. It's not necessarily has to be a scholar opinion or something. Like just as a human being, how would you describe a philosopher? I I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I I personally don't enter these. Uh, you know. Do you have a... No. I you know, I would say that you are closer to being a philosopher than I am. But uh, the. Too hard a question. Uh, I have, I have something, I mean, you know, something related, I may, I may say, since it's last question, uh, oh, oh, sorry, here's the last question. I have something related. There are two forms of knowledge. There's my idea of anti-fragile. A lot of people mistook it as coming from, um, from some narrative based on past historical data. No. I use history for, uh, for uh, examples, but there's something called a priori link that you can figure out in your armchair from necessary relationships necessary mathematical relationships. If this is fragile, it has to hate volatility, okay? Necessary relationships. It has to be more harmed by, you know, increasingly more harmed as the deviation gets larger. So this is, and, and this is how we can detect you know, fragility. It has to be concave. philosophical mind, uh, you know, it is someone who looks at life and looks for patterns and sees them and sees large patterns. And, you know, we've been exposed to a fair amount of that this evening. This is a philosophical mind. Uh, and you are the last one. Practical. No, not, uh, yeah. Nassim, this is a question for you. Um, during Hurricane Sandy, uh, New York City basically ran out of gasoline. And it appears that the gasoline distribution system is fragile. I can sure. imagine what a robust system would look like for gasoline distribution. You know, the, the gas stations would not have run out of gasoline, okay. right? Okay, it's not, it's, it's, it's not, it's, okay, let me answer up to this point. So you can see where it's going, right? So my question is, I can imagine what a robust system would look like, you know, with more stockpiles or something. Does it even make sense to talk about an anti-fragile system for, say, gasoline distribution? And are there other systems or industries where it just doesn't make sense to talk about anti-fragility? Uh, okay, an anti-fragile system improves some stressors. So visibly, if they improve from stressor, they have the structure, they probably have some amount of anti-fragility. But you need to be robust. So they probably went, moved towards robustness. And robustness requires uh, um, uh, some kind of uh, redundancy to have inventory. People think it's silly to have cash in a bank. You're more robust if you have cash in a bank, you see? And actually, even anti-fragile, because you can capture opportunities that way. So you see the idea of having more. Actually, I know I, I wrote in a book. Actually, I wrote in this book about if you have excess inventory, people think they're a cost. Okay, if you have excess uh, hummus in your basement, okay, the kind of inventory I have in my basement, being Lebanese, you know, people think it's a cost. It's not a cost to have extra stockpile for companies because if there's a crisis, there's a squeeze, and the other people don't have what you need, the price of the commodity shoots up massively, and you can sell it. So will, having inventory is anti-fragile. So that I will is the end by, uh, I would have answered if I were you, I was expecting you to give a different answer. Well, what now? The yeah. anti-fragile anti would not be at the level of gasoline distribution. It would be at the level of transportation. I mean, gasoline is for a purpose. And the more various, the more varied the means of transportation are, the more yes, anti-fragile you're going to be. Okay, so that, that would have been... He's right. I, he gave a better answer. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Definitely. I you should have horses and bicycles. Great, thanks. <laughs>